Hello and welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is your host, Josh Summers, and I'm really glad you're here today. This is a podcast that I, in, in which I try to explore a full-spectrum spirituality, and I use my professional background as a yin yoga teacher, as a licensed acupuncturist, and as a meditation teacher to kind of inform how I think about uh, many of the dynamics in the spiritual path. And in this episode, I'm releasing a talk I gave to the online Sangha on Monday, last Monday. And in this talk, I try to lay out a progressive evolution of what your relationship to desire might be like over the course of your lifetime, if you're including spiritual practices within you know, the cultivation of your being. And I know that's kind of heady, but basically in the, in the talk, I try to look at how we often start out um, whereby our, our desire orients us to seeking fulfillment and pleasure and happiness and peace within the world of conditioned experiences. So whether it's a sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, we're, we're looking for uh, a kind of durable, rugged, reliable peace or satisfaction within that, that flux. And that strategy ultimately proves to be futile and um, frustrating. Uh, and then usually when that, that, when that strategy goes bankrupt, that's when people turn up to a spiritual practice. They show up at the shores of a meditation center looking for another way, another way of being, another path. And, and as I get into into the talk, there's often a stage where people actually seek, they seek a resolution or peace in the world of inner experiences or meditative states. And that becomes a, 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 its own kind of game, which Chogyam Trungpa called spiritual materialism. And when all of those strategies prove to be futile, there's often a churning away. There's a churning away from wanting anything. And as I try to articulate that in the title of this talk and also sort of the theme that's ex expounded upon, the turning away from wanting something becomes a wanting for nothing. And at that moment, uh, it, the, the one's experience pivots to a lack of nothing, meaning that nothing is lacking when there's not when we when our heart isn't hooked by wanting any one thing in particular. We become opened within the whole. We're open within the totality, and that's um, one of the ways of articulating this kind of evolution of uh, the energy of desire through the course of a practice that then starts to transmute that desire to a higher uh, function. So I hope you enjoyed this talk. Um, and just before I give it to you, I just want to say that if you are interested in yin yoga at all, again, that's the, uh, the yoga style that I've been teaching for nearly two decades now. Um, it's, a, it's a core practice that I use to explore my own mind and body and experience with. And if you're interested in checking yin yoga out, I just want to announce that I'll be giving an introductory workshop on March 6th. That's a Saturday from 12 to 2 Eastern Standard Time. I'll be giving a, a kind of a, a core essential heart of yin yoga principles and practice type of workshop for about two hours uh, where you can learn the basic theory and some of the, the core poses with me um, so that you can start to bring this particular style of practice into your own spiritual repertoire if you're interested. So information on that will be in the show notes. It's on my website under workshops, but check out the show notes and you'll see a link for that. Um, so again, it's on March 6th, which is just the end of this week when this podcast goes live. 
Um, and if you happen to miss the live workshop, fear not. The workshop will be recorded and the recording will live on my site in the library. But to, in order to gain access to the library, we want people to be members in our Sangha. And that's our online practice community. So when you become a member, you will get uh, access to that particular workshop, as well as all the other recorded classes that we have archived there now, including these Dharma talks. So uh, head over to the website, uh, look under the Sangha tab or the workshop tab, and there'll be more information there for you. Okay, without further ado, I now bring you today's talk, A Want for Nothing. Okay, so for tonight's talk, um, I'm continuing to share some reflections around uh, the theme in, in the contemplative, or at least in the Buddhist contemplative literature, which is the theme known as the hindrances, the difficult, challenging energies that are, are, arise, uh, come up, and, and really make our lives difficult when they're, when they're operating. As we uh, continue to deepen uh, into the territory or terrain of a spiritual path. And um, so far, if you're just joining us, I've only been talking really about the first of these difficulties known. And, and that first, the first difficulty is the, the energy of wanting, the, the energy of desire, and how we can work with that energy, how we can come to connect with it, understand it, and ultimately transmute it so that the, 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 the sort of the superficial desires we often um, grasp after, those can be folded into uh, really, the deeper territory of our heart's desire, our deeper heart's desire for freedom, for peace, for contentment, for joy, for love, for compassion. And um, tonight will be more or less the last talk I think I'll be giving on desire itself. Um, and, and this talk will serve more or less as a consolidating talk, you know, meaning I'm going to try to draw together some of the, the, the strands of reflections I've been giving over the last few weeks and pulling them together in one hopefully coherent um, sense of it. Um, and while I was preparing for this talk, uh, particularly during my own meditation this morning and yesterday, um, little little fragments of uh, what I think is becoming a, an emerging poem started coming to me. And, 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 and don't get too excited when I say it like that. Like, I am not a, I don't consider myself a poet. I don't consider myself to be even that learned, learned about poetry. Uh, all I know is I like poetry um, and um, I don't really know the theory behind it or the, the different forms of it, et cetera. So if what I'm calling a poem is utterly offensive to you, if you have a PhD in literature and you, you, you studied Emily Dickinson and whatever, and you're listening to what I say and like, that's just not a poem. I, I, I won't disagree with you, but this is my version of a poem, which is ultimately um what I would say, what I'm saying about this this poem is that it, it it tries to articulate the major stages of how we can relate to our how or how we might relate to our our desires over the course of an old unfolding spiritual path. So it's meant to kind of highlight some of the main thresholds or transition points or inflection points in one's relationship to desire as one continues to work with uh, spiritual instruction and and um, the train of, of, a, of a living, breathing uh, spiritual path. So what I'm gonna do is share the poem first. I'll just read it through it slowly. And then I wanna kind of dissect it a little bit and, and, and segmentize it a little bit and try to show 
what I think each section of the poem is, is speaking to in terms of collective universal experiences of how we work with desire. So um, the poem is called A Want for Nothing. And the, the only commentary I'll give at the moment is want in the poem. The word want um, is intentionally used uh, to convey its two meanings. One meaning literally meaning wanting something, like a desire for something. You, des- you want a cup of tea or want a... Um, a, a warm room or a jacket or something. There's the desire for an object. That's the kind of the conventional way that we use the word want. But um, particularly in more British context, want can also mean lack, a lack of something. One wants for morality. There's a lack of morality in someone's character when they want for morality. So I'll be using that word in that, in that, with that double meaning um, at a few points, which can add a little bit of complexity to that. To the, to the overall poem. But anyway, here it goes. Perceiving a lack, I want a something. Not just any old thing, but something that has my back. A thing that remains and satisfies, that endures and gratifies. Yet every potential candidate fails to deliver on its promise. Changing, shifting, darting, wiggling, a permanent dance of impermanent process. Engulfed by despair, I transmute my wanting of things to wanting no things. A life of renunciation makes rational sense. I'll shave my head and take to a lower bed. But imagine my surprise when upon surrendering to wanting nothing, I'm released from perceiving a lack, awakened by and to a want for nothing. So that last little bit gets a little bit layered with the use of the double double meaning of the word want. But... um, what I want to kind of do now is is, is walk through these four seg- these four main segments of the poem that I think speak to kind of uh, what I'm referring to as universals along the life journey as we relate to desire and ultimately upgrade our relationship to to our desiring mind. So I think the first the first stanza the first bit here the first stanza says, "Perceiving a lack, I want something." Not just any old thing, but something that has my back, a thing that remains and satisfies, that endures and gratifies. So a couple of weeks ago, I asked you to do a, an exercise where I had you sort of review through a few decades of your life and just get a sense of the kinds of desires, the kind of energy that you're putting your life into or direction you're putting your life into um, at those particular uh, sort of de- decade points in your life. To just to get a sense for how we, we, we can feel in our own lived experience, how desire organizes and shapes and directs our attention. What are, we, what are we focusing on? What are we valuing? What are we trying to pursue? And um, oftentimes that, that perception of like us lacking something, that we're somehow incomplete as we are, that we're, there's a fundamental primary lack in the core of our being, that needs to be filled in with something else. 
whether it's friendships, relationships, education, career, housing, whatever it is, as we, the mind will, will, will hold up, will perceive something's missing and then go out there and try to, to sort it out, to, 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 to line up the one's ducks so that what feels like is missing is, 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 is attained or gathered. And often that starts out materially speaking, you know, in the, in the examples I gave, I was more or less describing kind of material uh, aims in life, getting good re- the material relationships we want, the material jobs, job we want, the, the, the financial safe, safety, this, the, um, our health in, in a certain way, our, our, where we live, et cetera. All those things kind of, kind of convey a, a, a material sense around uh, filling a perceived lack. But usually when people come to spirituality, they've seen the limitations of that strategy. By the time people come to the, 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 the door of a meditation center or the, the steps of a retreat meditation center, people have usually sort of seen all the holes in that material strategy for happiness. There's no car, there's no person, there's no cup of coffee, whatever it is. There's no thing that's going to, um, that's going to ultimately fill us up. So we, we come to a practice like, oh, I know, the reason why I, you know, I'm not happy is because I have this, this attention that's all over the place. And if I can just get my attention to behave in accordance to my desires, then I'll be, be all good. I'll be, I'll be happy. So we, we come to meditation we, like the, the search for, for, for sanity turns to meditation. And uh, we hope often in the beginning of our practice that we'll be able to become a competent, um, what's another word I could use here, a competent, uh, accomplished, and attained meditator. You know, like, we, we'd, like we'd go and get a PhD in, say, psychology or mathematics. Like we go through a curriculum and ultimately, at the end of finishing that curriculum, we'd have a degree of competence and um, command of, of the thing we're trying to do, of, of the domain of, of learning that we're, we're undertaking. Um, and so this, in, in this way, when we approach spirituality like that, like I'm going to do something within my practice to become a better me, any forms of the self-improvement camp, uh, campaign, all of that ultimately becomes, again, what something what, what, what the teacher Chogum Trungpa would refer to as spiritual materialism. So our, our, the, the wanting for a special thing sh- shifts from uh, material things, wanting specific material things like, like I listed, like clothes or housing or whatever, and shifts to the wanting for sought after inner states or spiritual states like bliss states, attractive lights, bliss states, um, or certainly just to get away from the, the sort of the, the rambling, chattering thought stream that tends to plague us a lot of the time. So we, we're looking for the thing that will satisfy here. And, and that's when the second sort of stanza of the poem uh, picks up. It says, when we practice ascension, we start to sit down and look into our experience, as I say in the poem, every potential candidate, every potential candidate, everything we experience fails to deliver on its promise. 
whether you get like a calm state or you get your mind clear or you, you see a little shiny, flashy light that, like the North Star in your third eye, whatever, it, whatever the experience is, you stay with it long enough, you see that it comes and goes. It fails to deliver any kind of lasting refuge or any kind of lasting um, enduring satisfaction or gratification. It just can't do it simply by virtue of its changing nature. So that's why I say changing, shifting, darting, and wiggling, all the descriptions for our experiential world. Literally, those, those, those terms capture anything we experience, whether it's outside of us or inside of us, whatever we're looking at, whatever piece, territory, facet of content we look at in our experience, it's changing, darting, wiggling, shifting, ceaselessly. It's a permanent dance of an impermanent process. And that often, and, it, and, and I should move off, off that stanza too quickly. This is, this is the, the territory. Seeing the relentless impermanence of things is really something that... Um, I could say the Southern schools of Buddhism, historically the Southern schools, the schools you see in Thailand, Myanmar, um, Sri Lanka, Malaysia, I'm sure there's a few others, but you see in the Southern schools a, a tremendous emphasis on the impermanent characteristic of all things. And the idea being that even though that can feel like a frustration to the meditator's mind. The meditator sits down, they, they want to find rest. They want to find peace. They want to find their heart's contentment. And at a certain stage, all they see is the impossibility of attaining that peace vis-a-vis an experience. So this phase of practice and seeing the relentless changing nature of your mind, the relentless changing nature of your body is often um, a phase that is deeply imbued with frustration. It's a very frustrating, confusing time because now you're, it's not, you're just seeing how, you know, you, you, you've gotten hip to the fact that material conditions aren't going to do it. Right? You, know, you know, as we said last week, the Porsche 911 isn't going to bring lasting peace. But now we start to see how, like, really how high the stakes are in our, within the nature of experience. It's not just about physical things we can't get to bring lasting peace. We can't even get a mental state to stick around very long. And so there's often... Hey, and this is, and this this does really come into how you might want to think about instructions. But from my from my two cents, I want people to see that changing nature, so that the relentlessness of that change inspires a profound crisis that will then lead to a letting go. So there's so there's a, there is the stage where it's, things may not feel so good. And, and that's where I said, you know, uh, this next stanza, I say, engulfed by, dis- by despair, 
I, I transmute my wanting of things to wanting no things. And I think this is, this is I say this is like kind of a, a spiritual universal cross-culturally, that when people tend to really perceive kind of the impossibility of extracting lasting satisfaction from experience, when we really directly open to the, the impossibility of extracting lasting satisfaction from experience, it can it can really upturn our, our our whole you know world of values and priorities, and a lot of times people what people do is when they when they encounter that is they they renounce the world and become a monastic either monk monk or nun. Now I'm, I'm kind of lightly giving service to lip service to that by saying a life of renunciation makes rational sense on a certain level. You know, it, it, and I know I joked about this many a few weeks back. The idea of an investment strategy. If you were told the investment strategy you were you were putting all your energy and money into was just going to go into the ground at some point in the future, and rot. You know, that would that wouldn't be a very um, uh, enticing investment strategy. But the Buddha sort of came to that in his own life. He said, "Why would I?" Try to seek things that are, are, are bound up in aging, illness, and death. Why would I invest all my time and energy and resources into things that are bound by those conditions? And so he left home. He, I mean, and I won't get into his life too much now, but he ultimately left home, renounced his palace life, renounced his family life in search of that which was not bound up in the condition of change. And he, he was able to find the answer to his, his longing. And, and in many ways, that's what the task we're all presented with here is how do we get some tips and advice from his own life story, which is, takes, you know, could say, takes form of the, in the teachings, but how can we apply what he, uh, insights that he, he grokked and bring our own predicament with the world to a resolution. How do we come to a resolution? How do we find that which is not bound up in aging, illness, and decay? So around this time, you know, as I'm describing, we start out, we're looking, we, we, we get born into this world where we, for a large portion of our early life, we're just trying to get the, the sense of the rules and the, the agreements we're all playing and the games we're all playing and how we can more or less try to come out on top of those games. And then we start, once we get a little bit wiser, we start to see the limitations of all of those games. But ultimately, there is no real winner to them because everything is going to be changing. We come to spirituality, and the spiritual path brings us even closer to the futility of our games. It brings it, it brings it even right in front of our face. We start to see every moment by moment how we're grasping after this, pushing that away, wishing this would come up, wishing you had a different experience, wanting to get the insight, wanting to get the idea, wanting to have the dong that knows you that tells you that you got it right. And we get frustrated. And so there is this, this phase, and I, I really want to give it its full, like, 
honor it in a way. I want to honor the frustration that some of you may be feeling at certain points in your practice. And I know some of you are. But then I continue, and this is how the poem concludes. It says, but imagine my surprise. Because it is, <laughs> we taste it, it is a surprise. Imagine my surprise when upon surrendering to wanting nothing. I mean that literally there, like wanting no thing. I don't, I, I'm not looking for a sensation to give me the relief I'm looking for. I'm not looking for a thought to give me the relief I'm looking for. I'm not looking for a feeling. I'm not looking for an emotion. I'm not looking for a sound. I'm not looking for an image or a taste. I'm no longer looking at things, conditions of experience, sounds, sensations, thoughts, smells, tastes, touches. I'm not looking at those things to providing lasting satisfaction. I'm letting them be themselves. I'm giving them, allowing them to be the beings that they are exactly as they are without any need to demand something from them. And that's, people come to this, this moment in, their, in, in different ways, and I, and, I, and I can only speak to it how I feel like I come to it when I come to it, which is that usually it, it is that experience at that moment is, is one of deep surrender. And it's, it's a sense of, um, you know, I'm, it's not that I'm, I'm surrendering myself completely. I'm, I know I'm still here, but it's the surrender of the relationship to the experiences that are, that are occurring. And it's a surrender to letting them be exactly as they are, whether they're positive or negative. That's just a surrender to that. Now, that surrender, the, that the, the arc of that surrender can feel initially like a, a death of something in, in oneself or death of a part of oneself. Because a part, of, a part of us that has been seeking resolution, seeking happiness in things, has a very well-established role in our, our ecosystem of being. So we all have that. And, and, and that part doesn't need to go away either. But a larger part of us surrenders to things as they are. And as we surrender to things as they are, we start to intuit directly, and it's, it's a pre-verbal, pre-conceptual or non-conceptual sense of a dimension of our being that is able to hold and be with anything and defined by none of it. So when, when, when the small part of us is trying to get things right, to, to be a good meditator, to to, you know, to stay close to the, the anchor or stay with the breath or the mantra. When, when that all of that chills out and the doership of trying to manipulate, organize, rearrange the content and conditions of experience, when that all chills out, then a dimension of our being, which is always already here, emerges as a into the foreground of our awareness because it's no longer a, sort of covered over by all the grasping. 
all the, oftentimes the, 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 the egoic forms of grasping and control and manipulation dazzle uh, the, our focal attention to the point that we don't perceive this diffuse open field of awareness that is always unblemished, that is always untrammeled, undisturbed, unagitated. So when we want nothing, another that's another way of saying when we when we lack nothing, when we when we don't try to uh, manipulate anything, we we give. We're, we're, we're generous in the sense that we give everything its own due. We release ourselves, as I say in the poem, we, I am released from perceiving a lack. And that's why, I mean, I, I think it was two weeks ago, I read a passage by Roger Walsh where he says this, Transmutation of desire to the higher dimensions of desire is not a sacrifice. It's not a sacrifice. It can feel like a threatened sacrifice to the ego that has to let go of control. But on the other side of that coin, the letting go is not a detachment from life, but it's an intimate embrace with everything. And I'm going to just wind down here with, with a, a metaphor that is often deployed in the Zen tradition, which I've read mostly from. I haven't studied or practiced directly with Zen teachers, but I've always appreciated their writing. And may, who knows, maybe at some point I'll be able to find the Zendo near me. But um, in Zen, they often compare the mind to a mirror, to a clear, empty mirror. And in this metaphor, the mirror, the reflective quality of the mirror itself is analogous to our awareness. So just as the mirror can reflect literally whatever comes before it, our awareness can reflect whatever, and it can hold and reflect whatever comes before it or comes within it. Our experience, our thoughts, our sensations, our fears, our anxieties, our desires, our aversions, all of that, all the, the dynamics of our experience are simply the reflections in the mirror. And when we're not awake, when we're not tuned into the reflective quality, the, the luminous reflective quality of our own awareness, when we're, when we're kind of asleep or we've forgotten that, the nature of awareness is to identify with the content. With, it identifies with the experiences we're having. So it's not just awareness knowing a sound or awareness knowing a sensation. It's I'm thinking about something. I have this sensation in my leg. I have this problem that needs to get resolved. So that when, when there's identification, the awareness literally contracts and, and, and sort of shrink wraps around the thought and becomes merged with it. You're the one that's thinking. But when we wake up and remember the awareness nature of, our, of ourselves, these thoughts that we have, the experiences that come, are, come through us, are just harmless reflections within the luminous self 
reflective quality of awareness. And there is a, a, a really lovely passage from um, a book that I'm reading by the, the late teacher and psychiatrist named John Wellwood, who's written a lot about spirituality. I, I always appreciate his voice on things. He says, awareness is like being the mirror itself, that vast illuminating openness and clarity that allows reality to be seen as what it is. In pure presence or in pure awareness, the awareness is self-illuminating or aware of itself without reference to anything. The mirror simply abides in its own nature without either separating from its reflections or confusing itself with them. That line, when I first read it, like just leapt out and grabbed me by the back of the neck when I read it. The mirror simply abides in its own nature without either separating from its reflections. There's no separation between the, the luminous quality of the mirror and the reflections that are within it. There's no separation there. So there's an, you could say there's an intimacy between the, the, the reflectiveness of the mirror and the reflections within it. So that you're not separate from the reflections and the mirror does not confuse itself with the reflections. And this is where it can sound a little bit challenging. So if you're, this is like, if you're wondering, what am I getting at? This may be something that you, you know, may have to listen to again or just sit with over time and let it, and until the experience, because this, this does really nail the experience itself that you can, you have the, the whole phenomenological world going on and you intimately experience it without any separation, but also no confusion about who and what you are in relationship to any of it. And it sounds complicated because words always will complicate it, but in the actual tasting of it, it's the most simple and ordinary thing there is. This is the final bit from John Wellwood. He says, and this, and this, is, this gets into how, we, how I try to cue the meditation to, to align us towards the truth of this statement. He says, negative reflections do not stain the mirror. Positive reflections do not improve upon the mirror. They are all the mirror's self-illuminating display. So, you know, what, coming back to what I was saying in the poem, in the beginning, you know, when, when we come to practice, we're like, we're looking for the spiritually significant experience to confirm that we're doing a good job at meditation. We're thinking a positive experience is going to improve upon our mirror. And we're trying to get away from negative experiences, thinking they, they stain or sully the mirror. It's that view itself, which is the kernel of delusion. Okay, that's today's talk, A Want for Nothing. I hope it stimulates your mind and being a bit and uh, opens up some avenues of inquiry and exploration in your own practice. 
once again, if you'd like to join me for the upcoming Yin Yoga workshop, an introduction to Yin Yoga, um, there's a link in the show notes that will take you to that registration page on my site. Um, it's on Saturday, March 6th from 10 to 12. If you're listening after that date, uh, you can access this class and other classes in our library by becoming a member to the Sangha, or you can just keep an ear out for the next workshops that may be coming up down the line. In any event, I want to thank you for your attention today. I really appreciate your presence here. I wish you all the best in your practice and your everyday life, and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode.